What are we to think uh, on a week like this one where we turn on the news and hear about a plane going down in Pakistan with 150 plus people on board it, all of whom were killed? Or more locally, perhaps you heard the story about the homeless woman in Washington Park down near the city gospel mission where we serve who was accidentally run over by a police cruiser and killed. What kinds of thoughts should cross our minds just to think back when an entire nation like Haiti is devastated by an earthquake and we see pictures of people buried alive and then buried dead underneath the rubble of buildings collapsed on them? Even more close to home, how should we think and what should be the meditations of our hearts when someone that we love and know personally has a sudden heart attack or is killed in a car crash? Is God angry in those moments? Was there some sin that caused such a tragedy? And if the answer to that question is no, then why does God let such terrible things happen? And what do the frightening and tragic newsreels on CNN and ABC News mean for me as I watch at home in the comfort of my living room in middle-class America? Those are the kinds of questions that thinking people ask themselves often. Because there's so much tragedy, there's so much heartache in the world, both that we know personally and that we see on the television. And we need to think about those questions and be able to have good responses for people that ask us and good responses for ourselves when we watch the news or when we sit in the funeral home. And while we'd have to comb the whole Bible to really put a comprehensive answer to those kinds of questions together. Luke 13, verses 1 through 9, is a good place to start, at least. This is one of the classic passages in the Bible about suffering and its connection to sin and the proper response that we should have when we witness a calamity or when we watch and hear about it on the news. So I want you to listen in to what Jesus says about calamity and suffering here in these first nine verses. Now on the same occasion, there were some present who reported to him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. And Jesus said to them, Do you suppose that these Galileans were greater sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered this fate? I tell you no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or do you suppose that those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them were worse culprits than all the men who live in Jerusalem? I tell you no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And he began telling this parable. A man had a fig tree which had been planted in his vineyard, and he came looking for fruit on it and did not find any. And he said to the vineyard keeper, Behold, for three years I have come looking for fruit on this fig tree without finding any. Cut it down. Why does it even use up the ground? And he answered and said to him, Let it alone, sir, for this year too, until I dig around it and put in fertilizer. And if it bears fruit next year, fine. But if not, cut it down. Now, you'll notice there that Jesus didn't respond to tragedy exactly the way his questioners apparently expected him to. Judging from the way Jesus spoke to them in verse 2, we gather that those who brought the news of the tragedy of the Galileans must have assumed that the reason those Galileans were killed was as a just retribution from God because they were somehow greater sinners than all other Galileans. 
In other words, the crowd, it would appear, expected Jesus to hear about this tragedy and to thunder forth with prophetic words of judgment on these dead Galileans. And while Jesus, of course, was not afraid to pronounce judgment on sinners, that's not exactly what we find him doing here, is it? But neither does he respond at the other end of the spectrum, where modern men and women would probably expect him to land. Most modern men and women, Christians and non-Christians alike, would probably expect Jesus, upon hearing of the tragedies like the ones described here, the Galileans and the people in Siloam, modern women and men would expect Jesus probably to immediately launch a relief effort for these people and their loved ones. And while Jesus does in other places talk about relief efforts, and we are right to launch very quickly into them, while we are right when there's a tragedy to look outward, I want you to notice, because I think it's worth noting, that Jesus' response to tragedy here in Luke 13 is to turn our thoughts inward upon ourselves. And that's not always our first response. Jesus wants us to practice self-examination when we see tragedy in the world. And that's not something that most of us are always very good at, especially modern American people. In fact, sometimes I wonder if the reason why many Americans are so eager to spring into action, Christian and non-Christian alike, is because if we spring into action, then we don't have to think and we don't have to look inside ourselves. If I can just jump in and help someone and lend a hand, then I can salve my conscience of any conviction of personal sin that the Holy Spirit might actually want to bring about in my heart. And so I say Jesus didn't respond the way many people would expect him to respond. He didn't immediately launch into a prophetic judgment sermon, which sometimes may be needed. And he did not immediately roll into a humanitarian relief effort, which is often needed. But what he does say in this passage is immensely helpful to us when we face tragedy or when we hear about it simply on the news. Immensely helpful if we have ears to hear what he says. In fact, Jesus' brief speech here at the beginning of Luke 13, I think, can benefit us in a number of different ways. They're all interrelated, but I'm going to mention four of them to you. First of all, Jesus' words here can help us develop a theology of suffering, a theology of suffering, a biblical, right-thinking way of approaching tragedy and death and difficulty. Let me give you just three, three different ways. I won't give you three sub-points under all these four main points, but with this first one, I want to give you three facets of the biblical doctrine of suffering that I think you can demonstrate from this passage. So what can we say about suffering based on Jesus' words here in Luke 13? The first thing I think that's clear is that there's not always a one-to-one correlation between a person's sins and his or her sufferings. There's not always a one-to-one direct correlation between a person's sins and his or her sufferings. In other words, the Bible nowhere teaches that it's uniformly true that decent people or even Christian godly people will have safer, easier, healthier lives than the rest of the world. Nor does the Bible teach that sinful people or certain heinous sins will uniformly always reap devastation in this life. It's true that whatever a man sows, this he will also reap, Galatians 6, 7. But that principle does not often take effect on this side of eternity. So, 
Just because a person is diagnosed with brain cancer, that is not necessarily an indicator that that cancer is a repayment for some specific sin that he or she committed. And similarly, if a man or a woman lives to the age of 100 years old and dies peacefully in his or her sleep, that's not necessarily an indication that he or she was godly. And I say that those truths can be demonstrated from Luke 13. Because in verse 1, we have the account of some Galileans who were in the midst of offering sacrifices cut down by the sword of a despotic governor, Pilate, so that their own blood apparently dripped down the sides of the altar mixed with the blood of the animal sacrifices that they had just made. It's a brutal picture. And as I said before, it would appear that the folks who came to Jesus to report this incident to him thought that the reason this happened was because these particular Galileans had it coming. They must have been doing something unusually wicked for God to have allowed Pilate's sword to fall on their necks like this. But Jesus said that actually these Galileans were no worse sinners than the rest of their neighbors. No worse sinners. And then he posed a second example, that of 18 men and women who were killed under a collapsed building in the Jerusalem neighborhood of Siloam. And once again, Jesus pointed out that those men and women were no worse sinners than the rest of the people in that city. Now, Jesus didn't rule out the possibility in either of these cases that these deaths might actually have been the just retribution of God. They may well have been, or they may not have been. We're not told. But that's not the point that Jesus was trying to make. His point was simply this. Equal sinners don't always suffer equal fates. I'll say that again. I think that's one of the main lessons in this passage. Equal sinners do not always suffer equal fates. That's largely the point of verses 2 and 4. These dead Galileans and the dead people in Siloam were no worse sinners than their neighbors. And they were no worse sinners than the people with whom Jesus was speaking in this passage. Because if they didn't repent, they too would perish, he says. So the Galileans and the people in Siloam were no worse sinners than anyone else in some senses. And yet, everyone else was alive and these people were dead. And what that means is that sometimes people die under God's judgment while other people who deserve to die under God's judgment are still alive. And sometimes, on the other hand, people suffer not as a direct judgment upon their sin, but simply as a result of living in this fallen world, while their neighbors, who are no better people than they are, are healthy and happy. We're not told which is the case here. We're not told if these people died under God's judgment and these others deserve God's judgment as well and they just didn't get it, or if these people died for some other reason and these other people didn't die but were no better people because of it. We're not told which one it is, but the point that Jesus is making is there's not always a one-to-one correlation between one's sufferings and one's sins. Now, it is true as an aside that all suffering in the world is here because of sin. Right? We're informed of this all the way back in Genesis chapter 3 and following. Difficulties begin to arise on planet Earth, whether thorns or thistles or sweaty labor or eventually murder in Adam and Eve's family. Difficulties arise on planet Earth because sin arose on planet Earth through our first parents. The world that we live in is under a curse because of Adam and Eve's sins and our following in their footsteps. 
But the reality is that that curse often affects people seemingly indiscriminately. In other words, godly people suffer alongside the wicked. And sometimes wicked people prosper alongside the godly. And sometimes godly people suffer and wicked people prosper. There's not always a one-to-one correlation between how a person lives and how good of a life they have in this world. So suffering happens to men and women because of sin's presence in this world, but not always as a direct result of some specific sin that they committed. That's the first lesson regarding suffering. Namely, that there's not always a one-to-one correlation between a person's sins and his or her sufferings. That truth is powerfully depicted in the book of Job, isn't it? And it's plain to see, I think, when we look into Luke 13. But notice also, in regard to suffering, that we all deserve to suffer more than we actually suffer. I think that can be gleaned from this passage as well. We all deserve to suffer more than we actually suffer. Suffer. Did you hear Jesus persuading the crowds of that fact? He says to them, in essence, yes, those Galileans suffered an awful fate. But, verse 3, you deserve the same thing. So repent. Yes, what happened in Siloam was a terrible thing. But he says to the people in verse 5, you deserve that to happen to you as well, so repent. In other words, while it's true that tragedy and difficulty are not spread evenly across the tapestry of the human race, the fact of the matter is that every one of us deserves to perish, Jesus says. And every single one of us needs to repent. Every single one of us, if we're alive this morning, and obviously we are, we are being treated better than we deserve. Some of you have learned to say that. Someone says, how are you doing today? And you say, better than I deserve. Because that's the truth. If you're alive and you haven't been judged, you're doing better than you deserve. And all of us, therefore, deserve to suffer far more than we actually suffer, no matter how much we may suffer in this world. Therefore, the prophet Jeremiah said it like this in Lamentations 3:39. Why should any living mortal or any man offer complaint in view of of his sins. In other words, if you start to think that God is treating you unfairly, just remember how you treat God and realize that you're doing far better than you should be. So you see what Jesus and Jeremiah are saying? Apart from God's mercy, there ought to be a one-to-one correlation between our sins and our sufferings. We ought to die the moment we sin. But in God's mercy, he does not always or immediately give us what our sins deserve. Even those outside of Christ don't immediately get what their sins deserve. But let us not then turn around and think that because we have middle class homes and cell phones and televisions and air conditioning, that that means that we must somehow be more godly than the Galileans who died that day or than the Pakistanis who died in the plane crash this week or than the Haitians on whom the buildings fell. Whether or not God is judging someone else, we aren't always sure. But one thing we know, unless we repent, we too deserve to perish. We all, because of our sins, deserve the same fate as these Galileans, the same fate as the people in Siloam, the same fate as the people buried beneath the buildings in Haiti, but for the mercy of God. And we deserve hell beyond it. And that brings us to a third facet of the doctrine of of suffering that I think we can glean 
here. There's not always a one-to-one correlation between a person's sins and his sufferings. We actually all deserve to suffer more than we really suffer. And then the third thing is this. The suffering of others ought to move us to repent. The suffering of others ought to move us to repent of our own sins. That's the main point, really, that Jesus is making in these first five verses. The crowds assumed that the untimely deaths of these Galileans and the people in Siloam meant that those people needed to repent. And maybe they did. As we said, maybe their deaths were the result of divine judgment. Maybe they weren't. But again, that's not the main point. In fact, what Jesus says to his hearers is essentially this. When you see that someone else has died in tragic fashion, your immediate response should not be to say, boy, he must have been really wicked. Your immediate response should be to say, there, but by the grace of God, go I. In fact, I'd better make sure that I repent of my own sins or my fate will be just as bad, if not here in eternity beyond. That's what we ought to say. That ought to be among our first responses when tragedy strikes, to look inwardly at ourselves and to say, unless you repent, you'll also perish. It's not usually obvious, as I said, whether or not someone else's tragedy is a result of divine judgment. And even if we think it probably is, our primary response ought not to be to parade around and tell everyone that, well, you know, the Haitians were judged because of their widespread practice of witchcraft. Or New Orleans was flooded because of all the sin and degradation that it harbors and promotes. Whether those things are true or not, I don't know. But our primary response when calamities like that happen is to say, I deserve hell. As much as the most potent witch doctor in Port-au-Prince, I deserve God's wrath. As much as any stripper on Bourbon Street, I need to repent of my sins and plead the blood of Jesus for my forgiveness and ask God to help me change. Let me give you a more local example that I think might hit home for you. A few weeks ago, uh, as you know, the giant Jesus statue belonging to the Solid Rock Church along Interstate 75 was struck by lightning and burned to the ground. And my first response was to say to myself and to a few of my pastor friends, There's the judgment of God in action. If there was ever a lightning bolt from heaven, that was it. Given the way that church leads people astray with false doctrine and given what the second commandment teaches about not worshiping images of God and not even making images of God, surely that was divine retribution. That was my first response. And I tend to think that it was that. I don't believe God was a big fan of that statue because of what the church teaches and because he teaches us not to make statues of himself or pictures of himself. But the problem, the problem is that it scarcely occurred to me that day that I deserve to be struck by lightning too. It scarcely occurred to me that day that I deserve God's judgments on my sins just as much as the false teachers deserve God's judgment on theirs. And it scarcely occurred to me that there's enough sin in our church that if God were to strike this building and burn it to the ground with all of us inside, He would not be doing unjustly. And that should have been my first thought. And it wasn't my thought until I sat down in front of Luke 13 this week. And so now I have another sin 
of which I need to repent. My first reaction, in other words, was to say that the sufferings of others ought to move them to repent. And I think in that case, they probably should. But my first reaction ought to have been that the sufferings of others ought to move me to repent. And so should yours. Now, there are a number of other things that could be said about suffering. Namely, the fact that God's absolutely sovereign over all of it. Lamentations 3.38, Job 1 and 2, and so on. We could talk about the fact that God, even in the midst of suffering, even in the midst of judging our sins sometimes, works all things together for good to those who love God and are called according to His purpose. And we could talk about the fact that we should, in the midst of calamity, be moved to acts of compassion. Jesus doesn't say that here, but he does say it in John 9, 1 through 8. Paul does do it in Acts 11, 27 through 30. Those are some places that we could go. But this morning we're limiting ourselves to Luke 13 because there are some other things that we need to notice as well. And so I'm going to let those things pass and let you think about them on your own so that we can notice some other ways that Jesus' words here ought to help us. So the first point in three parts was that Jesus' word in this passage helps us piece together a biblical theology of suffering. And the second main point then is to say that this passage also helps us understand the doctrine of sin. The doctrine of sin. As we've been saying, Jesus never made it clear whether the deaths of the Galileans or the people in Siloam were as a result of divine judgment or not. But one thing that is clear about those people is that even if they weren't dying for specific sins that God was judging, all of the people who died in this passage were sinners. Do you notice that? Jesus didn't say in verse 2 that his questioners shouldn't have judged the Galileans because the Galileans were actually pretty good people. After all, they're offering sacrifices. How could you judge them? That's not what he says. No, he says they are sinners. In verse 2, no greater sinners than their countrymen, but sinners nonetheless. And the same thing he said about the people who died in Siloam under the building. They were no worse culprits than their neighbors, but he says they were culprits nonetheless. And Jesus, of course, said the same things, verse 2, about all other Galileans and about all the men who live in Jerusalem. Verse 4. So he says the Galileans who died were sinners and so were the people, the rest of the people in Galilee. The people who died in Siloam in the neighborhood in Jerusalem were sinners, and so were the rest of the people in Jerusalem. And then he turns to the crowds in front of them and is even more direct in verses 3 and 5, saying twice, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. So do you see what Jesus is doing? He's lumping everybody into the same class. Galileans, verse 2, who were often irreligious, with Judeans, in verse 4, who had easy access to the temple. People who died in calamity... Verses 2 and 4 with people who survived. Verses 3 and 5. Random Israelites that Jesus didn't see or know face to face with people in verse 1 who had actually come to hear and preach and teach. And Jesus is saying all of you are sinners. All of you need to repent. Some people may sin in more obvious ways. Some in more secret ways. Some people may be more religious sinners. Others are irreligious Some people may sin while ignoring God and other people, perhaps like the Galileans in verse 1, may sin while trying to serve Him. But the lesson is simply this. Sin is sin is sin. 
There is no sin that is any more or any less deserving of death than another sin. And there's no sinner who is any more or any less deserving of death than another sinner. It does not matter if you're one of the twelve disciples or if you're a farmer's market vendor who happens to be in the wrong place at the wrong time when a building collapses and falls down on the sidewalk. Unless you repent, Jesus says, you will all likewise perish. And that's part of the lesson of this passage. All sin is deadly sin. We don't know what the different sins of these different people in the passage were, but all of them needed to repent. All sin is deadly sin. Every sin deserves hell. And unless you repent, unless you turn to Jesus and plead his mercy upon you, you and I will all likewise perish. Now that ought to help us the next time we are tempted to look down on someone who sins in such a way that we are tempted to say about them with disgust, I would never do such a thing. No, you might not ever do such a thing. But what he or she is doing is no more deserving of hell than you and I looking down our noses upon them. What he or she is doing is no more deserving of hell than me losing my patience with my children or you fudging on your timesheet a little bit or driving 75 miles per hour when God's Word in Romans 13.1 tells you to obey the government whose signs tell you that you may only drive 70 miles an hour. Sin is sin is sin. And unless you repent of your sin, whatever it may be, Jesus says, you will all, we will all perish. And if we can only be convinced of this, that all sins are deserving of death. I know we know that in our heads, but if we could convince ourselves or God would convince us in our hearts, then we'd be all the more quick to repent of our own sins and all the less quick to be pointing out how everyone else should be repenting of theirs. We'd be all the more eager to take the two-by-four out of our own eyes before trying to get the pencil shavings out of our brothers. And if we would be convinced that all sin is really deadly, then we would be all the slower to commit it in the first place, wouldn't we? All the slower to excuse ourselves because, well, everyone else does X or Y or Z. We'd be all the more eager to gouge out the eyes and cut off the hands that cause us to stumble. And if we would remember that every sin we commit, whether we think it's big or small, deserves God's judgment, there would no longer be such things as white lies, would there? We would no longer confess to being a little too forceful or a little bit short-tempered. We would just take those adjectives out of there. Why? Because we would realize that in point of fact, there are no little sins. There are just sins, all of which must be repented of equally, lest we perish. That's what Jesus is saying. So what does this passage teach us about sin? That all are sinners and that all sins and all sinners are equally deserving of God's judgments and oh how those facts ought to make us flee to jesus this morning and be thankful for his mercy be thankful for his mercy how verses three and five particularly ought to cause us to run for cover beneath the shelter of the wings of the one who died for us the one who perished so that we might not perish the one who perished so that we might be saved if we repent i just ask you are you among those, as the psalm or the songwriter says, are you among those who for refuge to Jesus have fled? Really? Have you repented of your sins? 
to help you discern the answer to those questions, notice thirdly that Luke 13, 1 through 9 helps us in understanding the fruit of repentance. A theology of suffering, the doctrine of sin, and also we learn about the fruit of repentance in this passage. We've noticed several times already that Jesus issued to the gathered crowds and really to all of us who hear his voice a command to repent in verses 3 and 5. But then beginning in verse 6, he told a story that illustrates for us the meaning of repentance. What does repentance look like? How can we describe it? Well, listen to Jesus' parable in verses 6 through 9 one more time. A man had a fig tree which had been planted in his vineyard, and he came looking for fruit on it and did not find any. And he said to the vineyard keeper, Behold, for three years I've come looking for fruit on this fig tree without finding any. Cut it down. Why does it even use up the ground? And he answered and said to him, Let it alone, sir, for this year too, until I dig around it and put in fertilizer. And if it bears fruit next year, fine. But if not, cut it down. And I say that's a parable that teaches about repentance. And how do I know that? Well, not only because Jesus has been talking about repentance in verses 3 through 5, or 1 through 5, but also because of the strong parallels between what Jesus says in verse 3 and in verse 5 with what he says about this fig tree here. Unless you repent, he's told us twice, you will all perish. And then notice how verses 7 through 9 sound very similar, as Jesus says in effect two times, if the tree doesn't produce fruit, cut it down. Two times unless you repent, you'll perish. Two times if the tree doesn't produce fruit, cut it down. Do you see the parallel there? The fruit and the tree and the story are about repentance. Both human beings and fig trees will eventually be cut down if they do not do what they are meant to do. And so verses 6 through 9 are simply a word picture that helps us explain verses 1 through 5. And it's no accident in the parable that the parallel to repentance is the production of fruit. In other words, what Jesus is saying is, just like a fig tree, if it's healthy, produces real, tangible produce on its branches, so repentance, if it's real, produces real, tangible fruit in a person's life. Real repentance results in changed actions. It results not just in new feelings of guilt and new desires to do better, Those things are true. Repentance is a sense of guilt and it is a desire to do right. But if those new repentant feelings and desires are genuine and not just the stuff of temporary good intentions, then those new desires and feelings will also result in new actions and new behaviors. Fruit. Not perfect actions and perfect behaviors to be sure. But genuine outward changes happen where there is genuine inward repentance. That's the point of this parable. In the same way that a farmer looks for tangible fruit on his trees, God looks for tangible fruit in the lives of those who claim to have repented. Now, I said something like this in a sermon that I preached in a seminary preaching class, and the professor afterwards pulled me aside to warn me lest I go too far or be uncareful with my words. And he pointed out rightly that repentance itself is changed heart and mind. Repentance is a hatred of sin and a desire by God's grace to stop sinning and to live to please God. Repentance happens in the soul and in the heart and in the mind. 
And so he said, be careful about emphasizing changed behavior as though it were the same thing as repentance. And he emphasized that rightly, I think. Lest we should think that it's our changed behavior and our doing better that actually saves us rather than our hating sin and turning from it to Jesus. So I issue that warning. Repentance is a change of heart and mind. It's not a set of works by which we draw closer to God. But the fact remains, and the point of this parable is that if our hearts and minds have really changed, so will our behavior. Isn't that true in any facet of our lives? For instance, if a person has a change of heart and mind about his or her responsibility to care for the environment, you would expect that change of heart and mind would also lead to a change in their habits, right? They may not, when you come to their house next week, already have a windmill and solar panels installed on the roof, but you'd expect to see some changes if someone says, you know, I really got convicted that I should take better care of God's creation. Indeed, you would be surprised if you went to their house a week from today and saw their garbage can overflowing with styrofoam plates and Walmart sacks kind of scattered around the yard and all the lights lit up even though no one's home, right? You would wonder if there was ever actually a change of heart about these things in the first place. And if it's that obvious when dealing with temporal things like the environment that are destined to perish with fire, then this principle should be doubly obvious when it comes to spiritual things. It's true enough that repentance is not a series of works. It's rather an inward change of heart and mind whereby a person realizes and hates the ugliness of his sins and turns to Christ for his help. But once he has done that, If he has really done that, if his heart and mind have really changed, he will, as John the Baptist said in Matthew 3, 8, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. So do you see? The fruit of repentance is indeed distinguishable from repentance itself. My professor was right. Repentance is inward. The fruit comes out on the outside. But the root of repentance, if it's really repentance, always does produce that outward fruit. Inward changes of heart and mind inevitably lead, no doubt imperfectly, sometimes very gradually, but always discernibly to genuine changes of behavior. So here's the challenge this morning. Most of you are professing Christians. That is, most of you have professed to have repented of your sins and placed your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm thankful for that. But I just want to remind you that the reality is that true belief and true repentance, while not works in themselves, do lead to changed lives. So I ask you if you're a professing believer, and I've been asking myself even as I prepared this week, are you really different since professing Christ? Are the inward graces of repentance and faith really producing new outward godliness and change? If not, then take heed to the warnings in verses 7 And nine, if it bears fruit next year, fine. If not, cut it down. The tree that doesn't bear fruit is cut down because the tree that doesn't bear fruit does not evidently have the Holy Spirit coursing through it like sap producing fruit in keeping with repentance. The tree that does not produce fruit is not, in the final analysis, a Christian tree or it wouldn't be cut down. And let me remind you, too, that repentance is an ongoing thing. For those of you who are 
and who are assured that you're true believers, you still ought to be repenting every day because you still sin every day, right? It's possible to be a true believer, to have really repented of your sins and really trusted in Jesus, to be changing and to be eternally secure and to still have some sin problems that need to be dealt with in repentance. I think all of you will agree from experience that that's true. And so even if you've repented once and for all, even if you're a secure, assured Christian, you still ought to test your daily repentance by the standard that Jesus lays down in verses 6 through 9. Inward repentance produces outward fruit. Genuine repentance, genuine changes of heart and mind lead imperfectly but surely to genuine changes in our behavior. And therefore... If I say that I repent of lusting with my eyes or being short with my kids or being rebellious toward my husband or being hard on my wife or being intemperate when it comes to my eating habits or being slack with my giving or being lazy with my daily devotions, if I say that I repent of those things, then my inward repentance ought to bear some outward fruit. Not perfectly, but there ought to be real discernible change over time. And if nothing ever happens, have I truly repented? If I apologize to my son and ask God to forgive me for having lost my temper with him and then turn around and do the same thing within 10 minutes, I have to at least ask the question if my heart was really repentant or if I was simply saying what I needed to say to him and to God to make me feel better or if I claim to repent over my bitterness about what so-and-so said to me but I still refuse to speak to her, then I need to pause and ask if my repentance over what, or over how I initially responded was real repentance. Now again, neither Jesus nor I am arguing for perfection. Genuinely repentant people still sometimes fall into the same sins and have to repent again. And so some of the changes that need to happen, some of the fruits that need to grow won't necessarily sprout and be ripe tomorrow and will never be completely what we should be this side of eternity. But if our inward repentance is real, there will be some outward evidence, even if it's not as much as we like. To go back to the parable, when a farmer comes to examine his crops, he does not need to dissect the tree and examine the pulp and the sap and the xylem and the phloem in order to determine if the tree's healthy. No. The fruit or the lack thereof hanging on the outside of the tree will tell him all that he needs to know about what's happening on the inside. And so it is in large measure with the Christian life. You will know them by their fruits. Indeed, verses 6 through 9 seem to be hinting at the fact that God himself, though he sees far deeper into our hearts than we could ever imagine, actually knows us by our fruits. Matthew 25 says the same thing. So what should you do if you're sitting here and you're going, I know I'm struggling to repent. Maybe you're struggling to repent in general and to come to Christ initially. Maybe you're struggling to repent as a believer of some specific sin that's hanging on in your life. What should you do? Well, there's good news. You should realize that God is the one who grants repentance. That's what 2 Timothy 2.25 said. God grants repentance. And that's refreshing if you think about it. 
Repentance is not something that you have to work up on your own. And that's good news because if you're struggling with it, then you're obviously not able to work it up as well as you'd like. Repentance is something that God grants by His grace. And therefore, if you feel like you just cannot truly repent of X, Y, or Z because it's so ingrained in your history or so ingrained in your lifestyle or so ingrained in your character... If you just feel that you're having so much trouble repenting, all is not lost. Because God grants repentance. And God's not bound by your history or your lifestyle or your character or your culture. And so you should plead with him, God, grant me repentance. Plead with him like the man who came to Jesus and said, I believe. Help my unbelief. Plead with God that way. Lord, I repent. As much as I know how to repent, as much as I'm able to repent, I repent. But help my unrepentance. Help my unrepentance. And then notice finally and briefly the wonder of God's patience. We've thought about a theology of suffering and the doctrine of sin. And we've thought about the fruit of repentance. And then finally we think about the wonder of God's patience. Did you notice in verses 8 and 9 that the farmer gave the fruitless fig tree one more year and even more fertilizer before he went through with the act of cutting it down? Did you notice that? Even after three years of fruitlessness, still he waited. I'm not much of a farmer, but if I had a tree like that, I would be ready to get it down. I'm always ready to cut down the trees out here that are falling apart and not doing what they're supposed to do. But the farmer waited. And isn't that like our Heavenly Father? Isn't He patient toward us? We've already said that because of our sins, we should all be dead and judged already. And yet here we are this morning being given more time and even as we speak being sprinkled with the fertilizer of God's truth. And it's not because we are any more righteous than the people in Siloam or the woman who was run over in Washington Park this past week. We're still alive because God, like this farmer, though he is angry with our sin, is patient toward sinners and is willing to give them time to repent. As Peter said, the Lord is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but for all to come to repentance, Second Peter 3, 9. And that's what verses 8 and 9 are about here in Luke 13. A God who is slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and patient toward us. But Jesus is reminding us not to test his patience. Let's not forget what the farmer's helper said. Give it one more year, yes. But if it still produces no fruit, then cut it down. In other words, God is patient. Verse 9a. But his patience, immense as it is, only goes so far. Verse 9b. Eventually the time comes in the life of the fig tree and in the life of the fruitless, impenitent sinner for God to cut it down. He may add a year. He may even add another year and another year, but He will not do that indefinitely. And some of us who perhaps have yet to repent of our sins once and for all and yet to trust in Jesus may be at the beginning of that year or even several months into that final year. You don't know. Some of you may be unwittingly drawing very near to the close of your lives because who knows when a building will collapse or a madman like Pilate will brandish his sword or an airplane 
will go down or a car will drive where it's not supposed to drive. And unless you repent, Jesus says, you will perish. So do you see God is patient? He is immensely kind, having sent his son in the world to die the death that we poor sinners deserve so that we need not die that death ourselves. But God's kindness and patience ought not to give us reason for delaying repentance. God's kindness and patience ought to speed us up because the very fact that God is patient with us tells us that we're already living on borrowed time. And who knows how much time we have left. Again, the reality is for some of us that it could be that we will have left this world by this time next year. It could be that some of us would leave this world this very week. So don't test God's patience. Take advantage of it, even today. Father, whether we are believers or unbelievers this morning, we don't want to test your patience with us whatever sin is in our life, whether we need to repent of all that's in our past and come to Christ for the very first time today, or whether we just know that there are sins that are nagging and haven't gone away and we need to deal with and repent of this morning, help us. Grant us repentance. And thank you for your great patience with us and your great mercy in giving your Son. Thank you. God, that when we come to our senses and come to our Father, that you embrace us and kiss us and put a robe on our backs and sandals on our feet and kill the fattened calf for sons and daughters who come home. So help us, however far that journey is today, to make it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.